It's a blessing and a privilege to be assembled for worship here today, to commune with Christ, and excited now to be able to study God's Word with you and continue a series from 1 John with the overarching main theme of our assurance. I've said that I think perhaps the thematic thesis statement of the book is given in the last chapter, 1 John 5 and verse 13, where he says, These things I have written unto you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you might know you have eternal life. And so how do we know we have eternal life? How do we have assurance that we have eternal life? And we've talked about how that John uh, uses a literary technique known as amplification. And you'll see him cycle around certain themes. And so there's some redundancy and some overlap naturally in that. And there's some key words and subjects that he really likes and explores in the gospel account that is reiterated in 1 John. And so he cycles around these major themes and terms And he'll cover it, and then a few verses later, a few chapters later, he'll cycle back to it, uh, taking a wider swath, covering different angles and nuances. And so I've said that if we were to uh, explore the sub-themes of this book, divide it up into a series, we could do that by uh, looking at the themes that he cycles around the most. And I would argue that those themes are the statements he makes about God. God is life. God is light, God is love. And so the proof that we are of God, that we have God, that we belong to God, that we're children of God, and possess the eternal life that's associated with God is that we have life, we have light, and we have love. And so in part one, we looked at the evidence of eternal life is life itself, new life that we have through the new birth, and the evidences and the proofs that we possess that life. Last time, we began this mini-series on light. And we talked about our profession. John emphasizes what we believe matters. Doctrine matters. As he's talking to and addressing Gnostic heresy. And the Gnostics were those in the Greek gnosis, knowledge. They were claiming superior knowledge that no one else had. That uh, flesh was pure evil and therefore God could not assume human flesh. So they denied the incarnation. A central, foundational, fundamental tenet of Christianity Uh, They denied the humanity and the deity of Christ. They denied that Jesus was Christ, and they denied that Christ was Jesus. And so that's the context. So much of the context of this book is John addressing the Gnostic heresy, what we believe matters, because our belief has a profound impact on our behavior. And so there are theological implications, there are moral implications, and they were teaching that The flesh is pure evil, and so who you are in the flesh, what you do in the flesh is irrelevant. That's not the real you. The real you is spiritual, and so you can do essentially whatever you want. And John very much addresses that misconception as well. We're going to cover that, Lord willing, in the next part of this series and talk about our walk, our lifestyle, our practice as evidence that we possess eternal life, that we're a child of God. Last time we talked about profession. This morning we're going to talk about confession. And as we begin, I want us to note that there is such a thing as false assurance, that we can doubt our salvation, that we can be insecure for good reason. So we don't want insecurity, we don't want false security, but often those who are struggling with assurance are legitimate Christians who are struggling with sin and temptation. And the battle Paul describes in Romans chapter 7. The truth is, sometimes those who never struggle with self-doubt are self-righteous. They are not amazed that God could ever have forgiven them. 
True Christians, though, see His glory, see His holiness, see His righteousness, His justice, His law, and see themselves as weak and unworthy and fallen so short. And we respond like Isaiah and Peter and Paul and John, and it brings us to our knees. Non-Christians, fake Christians, aren't confronted with the glory and holiness and righteousness and justice and law of God. They're not confronted with submission and obedience and doctrine. They aren't thinking uh, humbly enough, convicted enough to ever question, am I really saved? And so this morning we want to consider a few characteristics of true children of God as they relate to our subject this morning of confession, repentance, and forgiveness. And the first characteristic we want to notice about true children of God is that true children of God are chastened by God, are chastened by their Father. And I think about the text in Hebrews 12 where The Hebrew writer emphasizes over and over that true children of God are disciplined and trained and instructed and corrected and punished and chastised to improve their behavior by God, by their Father, because that's what parents do. That's what parents should do. And he says that we feel divine discipline because He loves us. And so there's this paradox where Sometimes the chastening of the Lord, the discipline of the Lord, the correction of the Lord, the chastisement of the Lord causes us to question if we're a child of God, if God loves us, if God's abandoned us, when in fact that's proof, that's a manifestation that we have a Father in heaven who loves us. In fact, he goes on to say that we are illegitimate. We are not children of God if we don't ever feel and experience that. And so he says in verse 11, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. As we mature, as we grow, we see more, we feel more, we mourn more. There's more regret, there's more shame, there's more awareness, there's more brokenness, but there's also more appreciation and more motivation. Every failure and imperfection should cause us to relive and retell the gospel of Jesus Christ in our life. And we are chastened, we are convicted ultimately by God's Word, by God's holy standard. That's what chastens us. That's what convicts us. And I want to tell you, a church, a congregation that is the pillar and ground of truth, where the preaching of God's Word is strong and demanding, where God's Word is high and lifted up and exalted instead of tickling ears, that congregation, thank God if you are a part of such a congregation and such a church, but that church will generate more conviction, more chastening, and more introspection. And that's by God's design. God's design is for us to have a conscience that's a reliable guide only if it is trained by and captive to His Word. God designed our conscience to serve as an internal warning light that's meant to convict us and motivate us to repent and ultimately forgiveness. But it often doesn't feel like forgiveness when it's berating you, when it's accusing you. And it's designed by God to do that very thing. It's not designed by God to pacify you. And it works even harder, it works even better after you become a Christian and you've been purified and purged. The truth is, the regenerated will feel worse about sin than the unregenerated. Our sense, our sensitivity to sin has been heightened. And so as you grow, you'll sin less, but you'll feel worse when you do. And the more you're exposed to God's Word that convicts us, the more you are trained by it and chastened by it and disciplined by it and corrected by it, the more you know about sin, the more active and relentless your conscience will be 
about your sin, and that's a good thing. If we will distinguish between conviction of sin and condemnation of sin. Paul writes in Romans 3, All are under sin. None are righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Notice the pattern. All. No one. Jesus told the rich young ruler, There is none good. No, not one. The apostle John in this letter the one, the disciple whom Jesus loved uses plural pronouns. We have an advocate. He is the propitiation for our sins. If we confess our sins. Confidence wasn't in his apostleship. Confidence wasn't in the amazing miracles and works and teaching. It certainly wasn't in his subjective feelings, how he felt every day. His confidence was in grace. God's grace. And people who are perfect, this is an obvious truism, people who are perfect have no need for grace. Ultimately, then, there are two types of sinners. There are condemned sinners and there are cleansed sinners. And so we need to distinguish between conviction of sin and condemnation of sin. Both make us feel bad. Both make us grieve. But one is godly and gives a godly response. One is worldly. Are we sorrier that our sin is sinful or that our sin is painful? Conviction gives us clarity. It's specific. It says, I need to confess. I need to repent of. I need to stop this specific sin. Condemnation is a cloudy, vague feeling that we can't put our finger on. We just know we're not going to heaven. Conviction is constructive, and it leads to confession and repentance and ultimately forgiveness. Condemnation is destructive, and it stays focused on myself and my sin to the point that I become hopeless and despondent, and I quit. But Paul writes in Romans 8, there is therefore, and that's in light of the previous chapters, all have sinned, all have fallen short, all are under sin, Jew and Gentile alike, all are in need of justification by faith in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And he goes on to say in verse 3, for what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin He condemned same word, sin in the flesh. There's the condemnation. You see, here's the dilemma Paul's kind of describing and talks about here. How can God be just in justifying ungodly sinners like me? If sin is falling short of the glory of God, where we value and esteem something above God, if God overlooks that, if God doesn't condemn that, if God doesn't punish, the risk is He looks unholy, unrighteous, unjust. <laughs> But he's saying it's not a big deal when it is a big deal. And if God didn't love us, God committed His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. If God did not love us, there would be no dilemma. Because His righteousness would just come to us in the form of His wrath. The dilemma is God loves us. And God wants to save us and forgive us. But how does He do that? How, does he, how is He just in justifying the ungodly? How can he overlook my sin? How can my sin go unpunished? The answer is, it didn't go unpunished. <laughs> my sin has been condemned in the death of his son. And if we are in Christ, the condemnation, the punishment is past tense. It's past tense. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And he goes on to, in the context of suffering and obstacles and adversity and trials and tribulations, he says... Uh, I reckon that the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed. All things work together for the good to those who love the Lord, to our eternal good, even though there's temporary, present pain and suffering. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. 
And that truth makes a, a, a practical difference right now. There's no condemnation in my physical loss and my physical pain. It's not punishment. Satan whispers like Job's friend, this is condemnation. This is the abandonment of God. And many lack assurance because they misinterpret the adversity, the trials, the tribulations that are meant to work for our eternal good. And they interpret those as the abandonment of God as proof that they aren't children of God. There is no condemnation in my adversity, in my trials, my tribulations, my, ten- my failures, my imperfections in my relationships, my actions, my character, etc., if I'm in Christ. And if I stay and abide in Christ. True children are chastened by God so that they will confess. 1 John 1, 7-10, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If, here's the condition, we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His Word is not in us. One of the proofs, one of the evidences John emphasizes and gives that we are children of God, that we are true, genuine Christians going to heaven, is that we're confessing sin. (laughs) That implies imperfection. In fact, if you think that you are or have to be perfect or claim perfect, you're not a real Christian. You're a fake. The fake, the false, deny, the true, confess. They come clean. Notice the parallel in verse 8 and verse 10. If we say that we have no sin, verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves, we make Him a liar, we call God a liar, we do not recommend doing that. The truth is not in us. His Word is not in us. And without confession, you will be overwhelmed with feelings of condemnation. And I think David is a great case study in that. In Psalm 32, verse 3, he says, For when I kept silent, When I carried it around, when I tried to cover it up, when I tried to do it my way, on my own terms, and we do the same thing and we feel just like He did, don't we? My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. I'm tormented all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. He writes in other places about drowning his pillow in tears and how his eyes were rotting out from crying. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. It devours, it destroys, it depresses. And again, what you believe about your future, about justification, sanctification, glorification, about your standing before God will have a profound effect on your behavior and how you experience and enjoy the present with joy and confidence and hope or with joylessness, without hope, with insecurity And if you want the joy of your salvation restored, as David describes, confess and repent of your sin or you will fall further and further into failed attempts, further and further into sin, into failed attempts to attempt to find rejoicing and relief and redemption apart from God. But he says, if we will confess our sins, He will forgive and cleanse us. Period. That's the promise of a faithful God who cannot lie, who always keeps His promises. David had a lot of sin to confess. I acknowledge my sin. I did not cover my iniquity eventually. I will confess my transgressions. And at this time, at this point, he put the S in transgressions. Right? He had a lot of sin to confess, and he did. And God forgave him. Jesus taught us to pray in the model prayer, "If forgive us our debts, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And so, the question becomes... 
Are there any sins that God won't forgive? Is there a quantity or a quality of sin that God won't forgive? Is there an unpardonable sin? We think about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that Jesus talks about in the Gospels. Some say, you know, it's 1 John 5, 16 and 17, when John writes about a sin leading to death. Don't pray about that. Someone who's in this, caught up in this sin unto death, it's futile. Is that the same thing? Is that the impartable sin? It's my studied conviction. It's not. Notice he says, if you see a brother, in contrast to those Jesus described who are blaspheming the Spirit, who are Pharisees and unbelievers, and if you look at the context of those blaspheming the Spirit, they were... They had considered and seen the miracles, the works, the teachings of Christ empowered by the Spirit, and they were attributing those things, that power, to Beelzebub, to Satan instead of the Spirit. The Spirit that had empowered Christ, the Spirit that would empower the apostles to offer evidence and proof and witness and testimony that Jesus is God's Son. And if you don't accept that, if you don't believe that, there's nothing left to be sent to convince you, to turn you. They were refusing to believe. They were refusing to accept, to confess and repent. That's why their sin was impartable. That's why it was the impartable sin, because they refused to confess and repent of it. It's my conviction the only sin that can't be forgiven is the one that you don't give to God in Christ, the one you don't repent of, the one you don't confess. John makes it clear there is a sin that doesn't lead to death. 1 John 1, if we confess our sins, plural, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's all-encompassing. So the only way I can harmonize and reconcile, He'll forgive any sin I confess with there's a sin leading to death, is that the sin leading to death is whatever sin I refuse to repent of. Whatever sin I refuse to confess and let Christ pay for. Is murder the unpardonable sin? Is it unforgivable? Only if you don't repent of it. Lying, stealing, cheating, whatever the sin is, only unpardonable if you don't repent of it, if you don't confess. The other error is to buy into the idea that there's no quantity or quality of sin that can ever cost you salvation. John says there's a sin leading to death. There is a practice, there is a lifestyle, there is an insubordination, there's a stubborn persistence in sin and unbelief that will put you in a state like those blaspheming the Spirit that we will not confess. We will not repent terms and conditions of forgiveness given to us by God, and we won't receive reconciliation as a result. There is a sin unto death, and there is a sin not unto death, and the reason there's sin not unto death is because Christ is our propitiation and He's our advocate. That's the only way that's possible. 1 John 2, verse 2, And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. 1 John 4, 10, And this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation is a rich theological term, and it means making atonement for, making satisfaction for. God was completely satisfied by the price Christ paid for your sin. And yet our insecurity says He wasn't. <laughs> He's not. God doesn't want us to be punished. God doesn't want us to experience His wrath. We talked about that, but He can't violate His justice either. And so the love and justice of God conspired at the cross to make propitiation the death of His Son. God's holy love sent His holy Son to save us from His holy wrath. That's gospel. That's good news. 
And the psalmist then exclaims, Blessed, happy is the one, why? Whose transgressions forgiven, whose sin is covered, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, because God won't take our sin into account. He's buried them in the depths of the sea, 30,000 feet deep. He has plunged your sin in the sea of His infinite mercy. As far as the east is from the west, He remembers them no more. Why should we? Listen, if you're going to be broken over sin, be broken over present sin. Be broken over sin you haven't confessed and repented of. Don't be broken over past sin that Christ's blood has already forgiven you and cleansed you of. If you're going to be broken over sin, be broken of sin you need to repent of right now. Not sin that you've been forgiven of. Christ's blood cleanses all sin and all unrighteousness. God drove nails through your sin and your shame and your guilt. Colossians 2.14 Christ propitiates sin and He advocates for sinners. 1 John 2 verse 1 My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but... If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Why do we need an advocate? Why do we need an attorney if we've been pardoned? If we've been forgiven? If we've been, declared, if we've been acquitted? Why do we still need an attorney? Because we continue to sin. And he continues to represent our interest as our attorney. Thank God he's our advocate. And his portfolio is his propitiation. And he doesn't have to die and sacrifice again and again. That's what the Hebrew writer emphasizes. Once for all. He offered himself once for all in contrast to the priest who offered sacrifice daily for their sins and for the sin of the people because it wasn't ultimately sufficient. Once for all, he offered himself and he is set down at the right hand of God. And I thought about that, that phrase, once for all, that he emphasized over and over. Once for all, once for all as it relates to the totality of any sin, of all sin, all unrighteousness. What it means is it worked. It works. It's sufficient. It was, it was more than enough. It isn't just some sins or certain kinds of sins or certain kinds of sinners or just our past sins. Christ potentially, contingent upon our cooperation, put away all sin for all people. And He just brings that propitiation before the judge, who's His Father, Talking in legal terms, advocate, you expect him to say, appearing before the judge, appears before his father, softens that, reminding us, oh yeah, the judge, by the way, is his father. And he brings that propitiation, he brings that advocacy before the father over and over. The evidence, the facts of the case, the mocking, the scourging, the thorns, the nails, the death, the burial, the resurrection, it's finished. It worked, it's complete, it's sufficient, it's more than enough. Jesus is the righteous one. Thank God it's not me. There is no condemnation of those who are in Christ. Listen, the prosecution's case, it's not greater than defense. The prosecuting attorney is not greater than the defense attorney. And so Paul says in Romans 8, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who is he who condemns? Why? Because I'm perfect? Because I'm sinless? Because I'm worthy? Because there's nothing to charge me with? Because there's nothing to condemn me with? No, because you are justified by God in the death of His Son. That's why no one can bring a charge, an accusation, a condemnation against God's elect. They certainly try. I mean, that's the work of the devil. But others bring those accusations. And the point is, they can't make them stick. Because God has declared you righteous just, He has set you free, He has acquitted you, He has declared you not guilty, and God is the highest court. He is the supreme court. 
Therefore, do not lose sleep over lower the accusations and the condemnations of lower courts of opinion, including your own. He's inviting us to say, he's inviting us to answer these questions. Who? And the answer is no one. And he gives us four reasons why no one can bring you into final condemnation. Number one, because Christ died. Number two, because Christ is risen. Number three, because He is at God's right hand, finally making intercession for us. Christ is honored at God's right hand. Therefore, God's going to honor His work, His propitiation, His advocacy for us. Verse 31, If God be for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? He's arguing from the greater the lesser. If God did not spare His Son and gave us this greatest of gifts, will He not give us lesser gifts? Do you think God went through all of that, sent His Son to go through all of that for nothing? For us to just fall away? For no one to go to heaven? And we are invited to answer all of these questions and live with the assurance of these glorious truths. And so finally, some true children accept God's forgiveness and some simply won't do that. Maybe some are more emotional. Some are ruled by maybe they're feeling, I'm too bad, there's too much sin in my life. That guilt and shame is a universal experience. Even those who try to suppress it, even those who sear their conscience feel it for the most part. And that moral, implication, that, that moral uh, inclination is one of the great evidences for God's existence. This sense of morality, moral law and moral code. You don't get law and code without a lawgiver, without a code giver. It's one of the great proofs that God exists, that we have a Father in heaven. And listen, the only sin that won't destroy you is a forgiven sin. And we can try to deal with our sin and our shame and our guilt in various ways, but there's only one permanent and helpful solution. How do we cope? We all struggle with guilt and shame because we're all unperfect. How do we cope? How do we deal with it? Well, some do drugs, commit suicide to try to to numb the pain, kill the pain. We might call those physical solutions. Some compare themselves with others, and we compare ourselves with, well, so-and-so will make it, but they're a lot better than they're getting. There's none righteous, no, not one. And so then we lower the bar, we compare ourselves with people we think aren't as good as us to make us feel better, and that's wrong too. That's what we might call intellectual solutions. Some think they can pay it back through virtue and works and karma. We might call that self-righteous solutions. And then some give their guilt to Christ. And once we understand and appreciate God's plan for dealing with our sin and our shame and our guilt, all other solutions will seem woefully superficial and inadequate. And some lack the full assurance of faith because they don't fully comprehend and appreciate the doctrine of justification. If you're struggling with assurance, look at your theology. Bad theology contributes to a lack of assurance. You won't have assurance if you rely on your emotions and your feelings and your experiences instead of the mercy, grace, and saving work of Christ. And so you need to understand you are a sinner and God had a plan before you were born, before the foundation of the world to redeem you. The penalty for your sin had to be punished and condemned. We talked about that earlier because God is just and righteous and holy And so God substituted His Son in your place to satisfy His wrath and pay the price in full. 
for every sin. He took the punishment for every sin, and God was completely satisfied with that payment. And He resurrected Christ from the dead. And the God that had every right to reject and punish and destroy you instead chose the cross, instead chose the nails, instead chose to propitiate and advocate for us. Listen, through Christ, He pleads our case before His own throne. And that is absolutely incredible. Luke 15, Jesus gives us parables of the lost, culminating in the parable of the prodigal son, which is as much about the elder brother's attitude about forgiveness as anything, but we see a picture of God the Father receiving a terrible sinner who was an epic failure, who had wasted and destroyed so much, and heaven throws a party because God's grace has been put on display. Scripture tells us God delights to forgive. He's not reluctant to forgive. And we can, remember, we can remember the wandering, the wasting, we can remember the pig farm, but assurance is not an emotional experience. It's a rational reality. Paul says, I am sure, I am convinced, because I understand and appreciate the saving work of God in Christ. It's not emotional, it's doctrinal, and it's theological. It's facts, it's promises, it's realities from God's Word that makes me sure, that makes me convinced. I'm a child of God. He is for me, not against me. I am who He says I am. I am chosen, not forsaken. And yet we cry, how can I ever forgive myself? Psalm 51 you can thank Seth for saving, uh, shaving a few minutes off my sermon this morning. We, he covered this in depth on Wednesday night. So I just want to point out verse 3. I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. You think David ever forgot what he did? I mean, he committed some what we deem, in our minds, a particular egregious sins, ultimately, essentially committed murder. You think he ever forgot what he did? You think Peter ever forgot what he did? You think Paul ever forgot? He kept bringing it up. I did this, and I did this, and I was a blasphemer, and I persecuted and wasted the church. And the context of saying, I'm forgiven. I'm the chief of sinners, and I'm going to heaven. Hebrews 11, you can go through this list. The heroes of faith, and they all did terrible, terrible, terrible things. You think they, is that what it means to not remember? That you just intellectually, you, you completely forget it. And this question, how can I ever forgive myself, it's bad theology. And it reflects a misunderstanding of the doctrine of justification, gospel, grace. The truth is, you can't pay for it. You can't forgive yourself. Ephesians 1, 7, in Him we have redemption. There's the payment. Through what? His blood, not my perfection. The forgiveness of sins according to what? The riches, there's the payment of His grace. You can't pay for it. You don't have enough. You can't do enough. You can't forgive yourself, but God can because Jesus paid it all. Romans 3, right after verse 23, where he says, All have sinned and fallen short, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justified means cleared from guilt. Acquitted, set free. You've been released. You've been put right. You've been declared righteous. Just as if I'd never sinned. Justification. Freely. There's the word. You can't pay for it. You can't forgive yourself. Through, by His grace, through the redemption that is in Christ. 
There's the payment. There's the ransom price. There's the deliverance. Christ's payment is good enough for God. Is it not good enough for us? If that's the case, in our insecurity, we're proclaiming that our sins are greater than God's grace, that our sins are more powerful to damn and condemn us than Christ's blood is to save us. And I've had to give myself this pep talk and reminder constantly when I'm wallowing in guilt and shame and how can I ever forgive myself and I'm just being humble because I know who I am and what I've done and how could God... I have to remind myself, that's not humble, it's arrogant. It's not humble to tell God, you're wrong, I'm right. It was good enough for you, it's not good enough for me. That's not humble, that's arrogant. And think about the mission of Christ. The whole reason, the whole reason for the incarnation. John's talking to people who are denying it. What was the whole point of God becoming man for the incarnation? The name of Jesus promised that He would save His people from their sins. Before He was born, God said that He would give salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins. And implementing the Lord's Supper, Jesus said His blood would be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. His final words, the perpetual mission to His disciples, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations. The mission and message of Christianity is that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you can find forgiveness in Christ. That's the message we are to take to the world. That's the message we are to take to ourselves every day. When we get up, midday, when we lay down at night, God loves me, God forgives me. God loves me, God forgives me. God loves me, God forgives me. And I want to share with you something in, a, in 1 John 2.12. We studied this verse in a different context and, and subject But there's something here that I think has filled me with as much confidence and assurance as anything I could share with you about being forgiven. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you. Why? For, here's the because, His namesake. Forgiven for His namesake. And I want you to think about that and meditate upon that and how it relates to having assurance and confidence that God will forgive you. that it's good enough, that it will work. Here's the point. God's forgiveness isn't just about our worth and our value and how much He loves us. Thank God it's not about whether or not I'm worthy, how valuable I am. Ultimately about the worth of His Son and the work of His Son. Forgiveness glorifies the name of Christ, their salvation, no other name. On the basis of what Christ did, on who Christ is, glorifies the name of Christ and the worth of His Son. That's why He's going to forgive me zealously. And I can have boldness and confidence and assurance because God's forgiving me, not because I'm valuable and worthy. He's doing it on the basis of His value, of His worth. And at the cross, the justice and mercy of God came together to glorify God and all that He is and all that He does. And that should fill us with tremendous assurance this morning. You know, there was a controversy in the first century for those who had left the faith to save their life and now they've come back. How can we forgive them? How can we welcome them back? It's seemingly an an unpardonable sin, yet that was a sin the apostles made. And there's a controversy in the 21st century when we live in the times and the age of cancel culture with the plague of forgivelessness 
where we're looking to drag up everybody's past and everybody's imperfections and everybody's history so we can execute the next guilty party. And in such an environment, we can begin to question, can anyone be forgiven? But we believe if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We believe that Christ will plead our case before His Father. And we believe that anyone, including ourselves, can be forgiven. The people who crucified Christ, all of us, but the people who murdered Christ, Acts 2, were forgiven. Have you done anything worse than that? What must we do? Can't pay for it, can't earn it, don't deserve it. Believe, repent, and be baptized. Be washed in the blood. Resurrected to walk in newness of life. Having faith in the operation of God. Not that we come up and say, I I performed surgery, I forgave myself. It's the work of God in Christ. What do we do after that? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from honor. It's not rocket science. Are you washed? Have you confessed? The psalmist said in Psalm 51, a broken and contrite spirit God will not despise. That's the sacrifice He wants. A broken and contrite spirit. They didn't say, I have to be perfect. I am perfect. I haven't sinned. I have sinned. Father, forgive me for I am a sinner. Are you washed? Have you confessed? And as we offer an invitation this morning, He's inviting you. He is inviting us to look to the cross where all of our forgiveness and all of our righteousness was secured. And if you need to respond to that invitation, the Lord invites you to come as we stand and sing.